0: В кадре, который мы получили, только что Владимир Путин. Никто не слушает. Постучите. Правда? Это Навальный. Я ужасно рикну. О сотрудничестве на безопасности. С новым гоном вас, с новым
1: веком. There's something strange afoot in Moscow, or so it seems. There are weird and unsubstantiated rumors that Vladimir Putin is gravely ill. And as these rumors fester, the State Duma is voting on legislation that would give former presidents and their families broad immunity from prosecution and lifetime seats in the Federation Council. And all this at a time when Kremlin decision-making appears increasingly erratic. Now, often things in Russia are not what they appear. And this week, we'll try to shed a little light on what may be happening. Hello from my makeshift studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore, an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Falls Church, Virginia, is somebody I've long wanted to get on the podcast, Ilya Pana- is a former member of the Russian State Duma himself and the only member of Russia's parliament to vote against the 2014 annexation of Crimea. He's also an astute observer of Kremlin intrigue and Kremlin politics. Welcome to the podcast, Ilya, it's great to see you. Hello, great. Also joining us from Washington's cool Dupont Circle neighborhood is another Ilya, Ilya Zaslavsky, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation. Welcome back, Ilya, it's good to see you again. Hello, Brian. Good to see you. Good to see you. So um we have two Ilyas here. So I, I will uh, distinguish either with your patronymics, Ilya Vladimirovich for Ilya Panamiov or Ilya Grigorievich for Ilya Zaslavsky, or your family names, just so our listeners don't get confused. So let's let's get into it. This week we had two constitutional amendments pass their first readings in the State Duma. One granted sweeping immunity from prosecution to former Russian presidents, and another granted former presidents a lifetime seat in the Federation Council, the upper house of the Russian parliament, which also has immunity from prosecution. So it's kind of double immunity. And earlier this month, the Kremlin rejected as untrue Quite frankly, a very, very strange report in Britain's mass market tabloid newspaper, The Sun, which suggested that Vladimir Putin may have Parkinson's disease and was poised to quit earlier next year, a report I always viewed with skepticism. The Sun cited Professor Valery Solovey who's a Russian political pundit and a former professor at the Moscow State Institute of International Relations, who had suggested earlier on a Moscow radio station that Putin was under pressure from his entourage to step down due to fears for his health. Now, this is all pretty strange and pretty weird, and I had debated even tackling this in any kind of public sense, but as these amendments started working their way through the Duma, I was wondering what was going on here. There's some kind of Kremlin-orchestrated dramaturgy, some intrigue, or something else. Ilya Panamodov, you are uh, always you know, an astute observer of Kremlin intrigue. What do you see happening here? Is there anything behind this? Is it just rumor-mongering? Is it some kind of Pakazuka? What, what do you see going on here?
0: First of all, I think that all the uh, leaks and rumors about Putin's health, usually are being initiated by the Kremlin itself. They are just testing waters within the society. They are testing their own peers. Putin is uh, approaching his own cronies to try to understand who is loyal, who is not sufficiently loyal. So just, you know, taking a common sense approach. If he was going to die, whether he would be doing all this immunity stuff for an indefinite future, is he an altruist, you know, for his successors? Obviously not. So I don't think that it is the case. I don't think that there is any kind of terminal illness, but doesn't make Ron the statement that he is still a mortal being. And still at one point of time, he will pass away. And in one point of time, the situation in Russia would change in the situation without Putin. And I think that whatever he is doing in terms of constitutional reforms and and whatever, he is, he is trying to make this process as manageable as possible. But it's it's just the bricks that he's planning to lay. It's not the concrete plans.
1: So you, so I, I tend to agree with you, Ilya. I mean, it struck me from the very start as kind of re, it reminded me of Mao Zedong's you know, Let a Thousand Flowers Bloom campaign to see who is loyal and who is not. And that's, but, but why now? Why do this now? And I mean, you know, can the Kremlin plant stories in the sun? I mean, because that, that's the story came out in the sun, which is a, was a weird place for it to come out to begin with.
0: Well, I think that immediately after the recent presidential elections in 2018, Russian elite started to play this game of a potential successor. Mm-hmm. And the most fashionable word in the Russian political lexicon was transit of power. And mm-hmm. that's obviously was making Putin a lame duck and even that he has uh, six more years to go, at, at that moment he had six more years to go, already the whole construct became shuffling and unstable. And that's why I think that he passed all those constitutional amendments just to stabilize the whole construct of power i still think that his most desirable option for the actual transit of power firstly is to stay in power and secondly to stay in power as the ruler of a combined country of russia and belarus and i think mm. that that's where uh, the direction he would push for
1: Mm -hmm. Ilya Zaslavsky, would you agree with that? Do you you think this is basically a Kremlin-orchestrated campaign to see who's loyal and who's not at a time when Putin is nervous about being viewed as a lame duck? Because, I I mean, this does make sense to me for a number of reasons. This is not, I mean, it's not been a good year for any of us, but it's particularly not been a very good year for Putin. We've seen his popularity fall to all-time lows. He's not handled COVID very well. And we're seeing kind of what I called in an article earlier this year, the desanctification of Putin's rule. Would you agree with the other Ilya um, that this is uh, that, 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 that this is what we're seeing? It's kind of a, a Kremlin-orchestrated campaign here.
2: Yes, I think it is uh, indeed a litmus test for, on loyalty and Putin's security services following the elite. They have bugged governors and other officials, as we know, from different investigations. And actually, Free Russia Foundation has written about this. But I think it's also an attempt, as often with Putin, to draw attention elsewhere because Otherwise, really, the emphasis should be that Putin will be in power for the next 10 years after recent uh, constitutional amendments or even more. But if you say that he might step down, you know, that may alleviate some concerns among some members of the society and the and elite. But also, I would point out I actually started my think tank career with an interview of Moscow in 2006. I just remembered it. And I said at the time that. Putin is learning from other dictators in post-Soviet space, mm-hmm. especially for, not only from uh, Belarus and Azerbaijan, but even countries like uh, Turkmenistan. And here we are again. Actually, right about a month or two ago, Turkmenistan's president Urban Guliy Berdumokhamedov made similar amendments to his constitution. Outgoing president there will also have protections in the Senate. So I'm I'm just wondering if Putin continues, you know, to teach and at the same time take lessons from um other dictators in both Soviet space.
1: Well, along those lines, I mean, people thought he was kind of imitating Nazarbayev when he introduced the constitutional amendments and the idea being, but he ended up not doing what Nazarbayev did, which is effectively moving to a kind of a post above the presidency, if you will, the supreme leader of the country. I expected him to go that way. He ended up doing the crudest thing possible and just kind of zeroing out his term limits. But I, I, I take your point. He is learning from other Soviet dictators.
2: I think he actually still keeps the Kazakhstani option open for him. He can still create a state security council or state uh, council or, or whatever Soviet you mean. State council, for. yeah. Soviet, yes, and uh, step down there. I think Putin is really a, a gambler, uh, but with with endless pockets. He he places bets on different uh, you know fields and and sees which one you know may be more opportunistic and expedient to to, to, to go with.
1: Uh, Ilya Panamoreo, have anything to add to
0: that? No, I uh, totally agree. He just tries to keep all his options open because he's a very tactical person. He is not into a long-term strategist because they never work on the Mm post-Soviet space. And I think that the actual decision, what would be the way to go, he would make only in 2023, the one year before the uh, actual elections. And I think right now, he's just trying to construct as much reality that he can go in one or another uh, direction. He can still be this, like, Yilbasy in Kazakhstan, you know, the chief of the nation, the, the great elder of the nation. Uh, he can, uh, yes, uh, run for another term because of all those amendments. But again, as I said, I think that he is more thinking about uh, being making a part of history as the person who started to restore the Soviet Union and reunite the Slavic nations. I think that's his grand vision, and that's why Belarus is so important for him.
1: Now, there's something I wanted to throw out there to get both of your takes on this. It's something I've discussed with other guests on the podcast. Mark Eliadi and I discussed it a couple of weeks back. And that is that Putin's decision-making right now appears to be a bit erratic on things other than the maneuvers to keep himself in power. And what do I mean? I mean like the Navalny poisoning, for example. Why did he need that, right? There are rumors popping up in social media and on telegram channels and in certain corners of the Russian mass media that Putin is effectively in isolation right now. He's paranoid about COVID. He's not seeing anybody. You have to quarantine for two weeks to even see him. The amount of people he can actually see in person is extremely limited. And that this isolation is affecting his decision-making. And his decision-making isn't as sure-footed as it has been in the past. It isn't as confident as it has been in the past. The exemplar of this, I do think, is the Navalny poisoning the decision to try to take out Navalny, which appears to have backfired in so many ways. How do you see these reports that Putin is isolated and it's affecting his decision-making? Either, either Ilya number one, go. Okay, okay. Uh,
0: (laughs) so I I would tend to disagree with what you said about him being erratic. I think that what is actually happening is that he's pretty much tired of living. You know, he is tired of life. He is tired to be the sailor on the galley, like he described himself, the the guy who is chained to the wheel and has nowhere to go to. I think that he just he doesn't like what's going on inside the country. He doesn't like to be involved in all the different everyday decisions. That's why I think that he is actually enjoying his time. On the quarantine sitting in his bunker with two weeks' waiting period, as you correctly said, because he is taking himself as the person of a universe you know who makes global decisions, he likes to talk to Mahatma Gandhi in the spare time uh, spiritually as he as he once said, he wants geopolitical choices he doesn't want to do any kind of everyday job that Russian president is supposed to do, and when you are saying about the stuff that is happening, I think that's actually exactly because he is not taking part of every day's decision. I think that uh, ah. Putin, I have no doubt that he has to be blamed responsible for the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, but I highly doubt that he made this decision. He created do you, this do
1: you think, if, if I can interrupt for a second, do you mm-hmm? think anybody would take that decision without Putin's explicit sign off? I mean, Navalny is not just some opposition leader. This is That's a serious step, just to break in there briefly.
0: Putin is not a dictator. Putin is rather as a spider who is sitting in the middle of a net that he has created, a pretty sophisticated net, where he is a universal system of checks and balances. He destroyed, the, uh, virtually destroyed all the institutions inside the, uh, the country. He is not acting as a president. He is acting as Vladimir Putin. And there is no such institute as a president. There is no such institute as a government. There is no such institute as a KGB or whatever. You know, these all are just nodes of this pretty vast and uh, sophisticated net. And I think that, yeah, people which are within his inner circle, they could have made this decision. One uh, part of his establishment is manipulating Navalny, feeding him certain information for his investigations. Another part is totally unhappy and tries to poison him. And Putin covers them both. He makes those people whom Navalny targets in his investigations immune, and he makes people who feed him information also immune, because mm. that allows him to keep the balance in the circles of power in Russia. And that's why he's responsible for everything that happens, but it, it doesn't mean that he is taking all the decisions by himself. Elias Slavsky, would you agree with that?
2: I would have a, a slightly more nuanced approach to this. I, I mean, you asked, is Putin isolated and how erratic he is? I think if we're talking about you know his personality, I think there are traits of psychopathic behavior and... Uh, he is very cynical and he doesn't appear to have a normal family. And in that sense, he is isolated and strange. But does he have a backing of his, you know, ex-KGB guys around him in the Security Council and elsewhere in the actions that he does? I think he, he has that uh, backing. And he has played his you know, inner circle very well and they all depend on him more than he depends on them, on each one of them individually. I'm pretty positive that he is behind the order to uh, kill Navalny. Personally, uh, yes, personally, I think it's been his trade. We have discussed this with you in terms of murder of uh, Boris Nemtsov in previous podcast. Yeah. I also believe he is responsible for that. Actually, yeah, a I book think by-
1: could get a rogue in that one, but but yeah, we disagreed about that actually.
2: Uh, Emmy Knight's book uh, "Orders to Kill" is behind me in this bookshelf. She has pointed out that Putin and his people have been behind multiple murders since St. Petersburg times. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, poisoning his opponents is actually one of his favorite traits. So I I don't see anything unusual in that. Actually, I mean, it comes from two corners, I think. Firstly, a sense of impunity. Uh, And secondly, he likes to send this message where he can sort of publicly distance himself and present public deniability. But at the same time, everyone understands that he's probably behind this killing. So so that's why I think he likes poisonings. Mm -hmm. And um, Navalny's investigations have been expedient to Putin in some way. At least that's what allowed the Tsar to keep his boyars at bay, you know, a third-party independent compromise. It started to affect his own ratings and his own, you know, standing. And he just, I think, got annoyed with Navalny's, you know, rising popularity, especially in social media. He's been expecting uh, elections to state Duma to go in the same way as they went with elections to municip- uh, municipal um, mm-hmm. uh, entities. And he just, I think, I would uh, bet that he decided that it's better to eradicate uh, Navalny's influence now than closer to parliamentary elections. As for erratic behavior, I think the most erratic behavior that Putin's regime and Putin himself showing is in economics. It really seems to me that Putin and his circle, they don't understand how global markets operate. They really have acted against their own interests in the oil industry, for example, with undermining a very good deal with OPEC plus agreement earlier this year, just before the pandemic, and and so forth. Uh, I mean, the whole argument that many Western Putin understanders had that You know, economic cooperation, we can change the regime, that the Russians are themselves interested in money and and good business. It's all sort of has been thrown under the bus by many, many actions, by many erratic actions.
1: And just to be clear here, when you say Putin understanders, we mean in the German sense, Putin versterer, the Putin justifiers, if you will.
2: Well, actually, I have met many Putin understanders, even in Washington and yeah. other capitals uh, in, yeah. in, in Europe. And the, um, in, Oh, no, they, 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 they are
1: everywhere, but they, that term, that terminology, the Putin understander, is uh, is a direct translation from the German Putin versterer, which is, I mean, uh, I perfect. guess we would call it the Putin justifier. Yes, we all yes. try to understand Putin, <laughs> but um, understanding <laughs> has different meanings. Ilya Panamotov, would you agree with that on, on economics? They seem to be losing the plot here.
0: You see, I have slightly different angle of view. I genuinely agree with what Ilya is saying, but I think that the nature of Putin's regime, of Putin's power, is not being a consolidated will if you will, of country, of a nation, even of a certain group of people. What exists in Russia is a conglomerate of individual interests, and usually commercial interests. And if you take the standalone logic of, say, Igor Sechin, who was actually torpedoing that OPEC-plus deal that Ilya uh, referring
1: to. Igor Sechin, the CEO of Rosneft, yes. Uh
0: Yeah, uh, he was acting logically and rationally Within his own corridor of thinking, but it was counterproductive for the country in general, which, and currently, that's what I was saying, is just simply too lazy to uh, try all those individual interests and to select. He now concentrates on those geopolitical stuff. And that's where everybody is supposed to be aligned and not supposed to have their individual thoughts and ideas, but have to just support what Big Boss. Is saying, but in return he gives them the license to do whatever they want in economy. And actually, I think that he actually gave them the license to kill, because I think that behind the assassinations, say Alexander Litvinenko in in United Kingdom or Boris Nemtsov in Moscow or this assassination attempt of Alexei Navalny, I have zero understanding what could be the uh, motivation of putin putin himself by the way is a very cynical guy he started this uh, saying when he was first time asked by some foreign journalist uh, did you kill Anna Politkovskaya?" and he said no i didn't kill her because it was not doing any good for me so he <laughs> was not referring that like immoral that it's bad to, to hurt someone I... murder someone no because i had no interest of doing this and i uh, <laughs> i literally have No evidence he could benefit from the assassination of Navalny or many other people. I think that actually it was pretty much counterproductive for him personally. But it was very productive for certain people within his close inner circle. And by having this as a compromise, as a leverage on them, he actually consolidates people around him. So that's why they all are immune from any type of prosecution.
1: No, you you touch on something really important, and actually this is a perfect segue to the kind of the last thing I wanted to discuss in this segment before we move on into foreign affairs, and that is this Putin's inability to balance, because that has always been Putin's role in the system. I think you correctly describe it as this, this group of clans that none of whom trust each other, and they trust Putin to be the arbiter among them. And his rule has been effective to the extent that he has been able to balance those clans and to be the arbiter among those clans. I think that's that's sort of what you were saying. And right now, he can't be bothered to do that anymore. It's almost like the failure of Ruchnoi Upravlenia in a lot of ways. He's unable to play this role anymore, which leads to this question, are we moving into this period of what I, I like to call the crisis of late Putinism? And when I say the crisis of late Putinism, I don't mean that I think this regime is going to fall tomorrow or next week or next year or even in the next 10 years. But we are moving into this period where this regime is not taking the initiative anymore. It doesn't really have any justification for its continued rule other than its continued rule. Right where early on it was, I'm going to bring Russia up off its knees. I'm going to bring prosperity to Russians. I'm going to bring pride back and restore Russia's place in the world. Now there doesn't seem to be any justification for rule anymore. Putin doesn't seem to have the ability to balance among the clans and be the arbiter among the clans anymore. And we are moving into this period of stagnation, this period of Zastoy, which was characterized the late Brezhnev period. What What do you think along those lines? I mean... We all remember I, the late version of years, uh, me from here, but you from there. But,
2: um... Well, uh, I don't think that Putin is, has been moved to Zastoy to this stagnation because of his laziness or lack of options. I think he has been moved into that corner because of the erratic managed decline of Russia, that especially economically, that because of sanctions, because of you know being seen as a, an aggressive pariah ostracized by international community. But at the same time, he still have options. I think they still have around half a trillion dollars in offshore accounts. They still meddling in uh, various elections and um, developments abroad. They still, you know, are going around with pretty heavy weighting iron fist uh, in near abroad. I also would, um, I mean, be more nuanced. I-, I don't think Putin lost control over his inner circle and elite. It, it does uh, as a big mafia syndicate with competing. Criminal groups, but it's still a mafia syndicate where is it, they. Is it a
1: mafia syndicate with a strong godfather or a weak godfather?
2: I think a pretty strong godfather because they all depend more on him than he on them, and uh, they still follow his orders on major strategic issues. He might be aloof and sort of lackadaisical about certain, uh, you know, particular economic developments, but if he orders something, they they follow his order. I'm I'm pretty sure about that. I agree with Ilya Panamariov that they have this, what, uh, what is called in Mafia, Krugavaya Paruka, a uh, uh, collective, uh, right. collective criminal gang responsibility, uh, wh- where you force someone to do a crime and then you know about it and everybody knows about it right. in your circle and you all have to operate together. But still, I would insist that he benefited himself considerably for, from all different killings and murders that he mm-hmm. ordered. We can debate this, but I can show you many ways how he uh, benefited from uh, murders of and Nimtsov, uh, possible uh, assassination of Navalny, Litvinenko. The biggest benefit actually is introduction of this feeling of intimidation, this uh,
1: mm-hmm.
2: fear factor. Everybody in the elite I understands that. This in I understand- exactly, exactly. So that's my
1: take on this, thanks. Ilya Peromirov, are we entering the late period of of late Putinism in the way I defined it? Not in the sense that it's on its last legs, but it's entering the stage where it no longer has the initiative.
0: Well, I think it's a nature of any authoritarian regime. Uh, When it matures enough, it becomes more and more defunct malfunctioning. Just because uh, it lacks uh, intellectual capacity because a lot of talented people, they're just being pushed out. They need loyal people and not smart people. Sometimes it's even worse when people are smart and loyal, because that means that uh, <laughs> that, uh, that they have a very twisted mind, because it's, it's pretty obvious what's going on. And uh, I have a lot of friends of mine who still are in Russia and somehow related to the circles of uh, power. And that's actually the worst case when they actually understand what's going on but they make a compromise with their conscience to serve this uh, regime that's i think the most dangerous case that you can actually uh, think about because that means that something is really wrong uh, mm-hmm. within themselves within their heart and minds so, but uh, that uh, results in uh, very bad quality of the decision-making, because the motivation for those decisions which are being taken, they are not rational in terms of the interest of these positions and the functions, but it's it's rational only in terms of their personal private interest for the career progression, for the money-making for themselves and their families, and they are very short-sighted, etc., etc., etc. And I think that's exactly what we... Witnessing right now, and I think that taken that uh, Putin indeed is just pretty stuffed with day-to-day involvement mm. in in Russia's life, that he tries to make sure that his subordinates would handle the everyday problems, but they simply afraid of right. making the decisions. That's
1: a great way to segue into our second segment. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and take a look at something we all agree that Putin cares very much about, and that's foreign affairs, and especially foreign affairs in the former Soviet space, where it seems, at least to me, that Russia's just suffered a series of setbacks. And we'll discuss that in the second half. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast. My name is Brian Whitmore, an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Falls Church, Virginia is Ilya Panamaryov, a former member of the Russian State Duma and the only member of the Russian Parliament to vote against the 2014 Russian annexation of Crimea and an astute observer of Kremlin intrigue and politics. And also joining us from downtown Washington, D.C., is Ilya Zaslavsky, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation. I'd like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical.
0: We received, Putin, no. video so, it's not heard. been a good season for Russian soft Hello. power in Hello. the former Soviet Hello. space, Hello. at least as I see it. From the Hello. massive Hello.
1: street protests that erupted Hello. following Belarus's Hello. flawed Hello. election in August, Hello. to the renewed war that broke out in September between Azerbaijan and Armenia in Nagorno Karabakh, to Moldova's landmark and decisive presidential election in November, Russia appears to be losing its ability to influence, let alone dictate outcomes in the post-Soviet neighborhood. In the case of Belarus and Armenia, two countries where public sentiment has historically been quite warm toward Moscow, the Kremlin has appeared to have squandered much of this goodwill with both its actions and its inactions. In Belarus for supporting Lukashenko against the will of the Belarusian street, and in Armenia for failing to protect a close ally. And in Moldova, the resounding victory of pro-Western candidate Maya Sandu in presidential elections over the pro-Russian incumbent Igor Dodon in this month's presidential elections represented a potential body blow to Moscow's influence in that deeply divided country. I want to ask you both, my two Ilias, my two guests If you agree with my premise here, because I am actually writing an article about this as we speak, and you guys are gonna help me think this through and find the flaws in my argument, so I'm using you. Um, But Ilya Zaslavsky, let's start with you. Do you agree with my premise? Because I see three losses. In Belarus, effectively, the protests against Lukashenko were explicitly not against Russia. Actually, most of the post people, those Belarusians on the street, had quite warm feelings towards Russia and towards Putin. And when Putin supported Lukashenko, He went against the Belarusian street. In Armenia, the whole premise of Armenians' warm feelings toward Russia is, I would argue, largely predicated on the fact that Russia was going to defend Armenia against Azerbaijan. They failed to do so, basically. I mean, Armenia lost a lot of territory in Karabakh, most notably Shusha, which is actually quite remarkable. And in Moldova, a 50-50 country, basically right? This has always been, every election in Moldova has been 50-50 between the pro-Russian and pro-Western sides. Sandu won with 57% of the vote. I have not seen a result like that in Moldova in a long time. So each of these things appears to me, at least, to represent a defeat for Russia. What what do you think, Ilya?
2: Firstly, I would distinguish between Russia and Putin's regime. For Putin's regime, it has been a bad year, I agree, but it wasn't a horrible year. Overall, I see it as a My macro view is that it's a managed decline by Putin and it hasn't been managed, you know, perfectly, but it's still sort of okay-ish. Yes, there is a loss, outright loss in Moldova, but as you said, it's a 50-50 divided country as Georgia has been. And if I was, you know, Kremlin's advocate, I would say uh, let's just wait and see maybe Moldova could be turned back to, to Georgia and how how Georgia goes these days. It's sort of pro-Russian faction, uh, wins, then loses, then wins again. As for Belarus, I think you said street protests were not explicitly anti-Russian. So hasn't been Putin's support for Lukashenko. It hasn't been explicit. It has been very cautious and sort of still keeping options open. And actually it's a more of a wait and see mode for Russia. They are happy to see Lukashenko, you know, suppress the protest and just wait out the protest and see if that works. In a way it reminds me of what Russia has been doing in Venezuela with mm-hmm. Maduro. So we'll have to wait for results there. It's a very sad situation, but I actually believe that the protest should have been more active and, and pressing uh, not necessarily violent, as some uh, activists from Ukraine suggested, but they sh- they should have been more consistent and asking for uh, a general strike much sooner. And um, I think they, they have wasted some of their time. Uh, as for uh, Armenia, it's the most complicated situation. I have been following it closely as I've been writing on Kaspian energy for, for the last two decades. I believe the biggest victim here is actually uh, not russia or putin's regime but the collective security treaty organization mm-hmm. because it wasn't for for your listeners this is an organization a security organization led by kremlin which sort of supposedly provided security umbrella security shield for its participants but it turns out that uh, you know uh, russia has previously said that they are not going to defend nagorno karabakh but uh, armenian leadership when it Refused to sign association agreements uh, with Europe and mm. instead uh, joined, you know, Russia-led uh, economic uh, treaties. Eurasian, Eurasian and, Economic uh, Union. Euras- Euras- Eurasian Economic Union and other treaties. They uh, they sort of expected Russia, you know, to defend uh, Nagorno-Karabakh mm-hmm. and, and the status quo. But I think it's a it's a more nuanced situation where Putin absolutely hates Pashinyan, this yep. uh, leader who was elected uh, against, you know. Uh, Russian control mechanisms. And um, he wanted, in a way, he definitely wanted to punish Pashinyan. And when Putin signed this treaty with uh, Aliyev and Pashinyan, he think this treaty will serve a useful purpose to the Armenian people. I think that was his way of saying, uh, I'll teach you a lesson to Mm -hmm. that, you know, a free leader. But uh, I think overall... It is a par- partly a loss for Russia and for Putin's regime because it allowed Turkey in as, as a big player. But at the same time, Russia introduced uh, its peacekeepers into the region. And we, we know that Russian peacekeepers never leave the scene they, they, yeah, they, they are not peacekeepers. <laughs> They're
1: not peacekeepers.
2: Putin absolutely loves situations of simmering conflict and corruption. And I think that's what he will create even further in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, Armenians still retained Stepanakert and part of the region and this Mm -hmm. corridor, so it's not a total loss for them. And the status of Nagorno-Karabakh is still to be decided in the future. But also, all the Western powers are excluded from this decision-making, which is a a win, I would say, for Erdogan and uh, Putin. But overall, it is a managed decline, and uh, Russia has not uh, really shown full leadership. It's just playing and exploiting simmering conflicts
1: yeah, they don't they do not look like they were in command. I, when I say a loss, I think of it as a soft power loss because mm-hmm. our Armenians have always been very, very careful to maintain their good relations with Moscow, in their rhetoric and in their actions. And i my assumption has always been, in addition to the the long and deep cultural ties between Russia and Armenia, it is because of this assumption that Armenia needed Russia for its defense. I mean, remember, Azerbaijan's defense budget is bigger than Armenia's state budget, right, to give you an idea of the the respective capabilities of those two countries. So I saw this as a soft power loss where your average Armenian is going to be saying, huh, maybe the Russians aren't going to defend. Maybe the Russians aren't going to defend us. And I see the similar soft power loss in Belarus. I agree with you. They might be able to turn the situation around in Moldova, but I was, I was quite frankly shocked by the election results, 57%. A lot of that has to do with Maya Sandu is a very particularly talented and attractive candidate. And I think that accounted for a lot of it, but I um, mean, she's just very charismatic, a very capable woman but who uh, is very popular, justifiably so in Moldova, but whether that can, can last being in, in the prime minister's chair is, is another matter. And I don't doubt Russia's ability to gain back, but at least in the short run, I see a soft power lost here. Ilya what do you? I wanna get you in here. How, how do you see this?
0: You know, I would take uh, a slightly different view in terms of you know, Putin is making all the time just one mistake. In all the post-Soviet space and inside his own country, by the way. He always underestimates the will of the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's taken always a very egalitarian approach and thinks that you know those common guys they can always be manipulated through the media and that the memories are short. He controls the elite, and the elite controls the media then people would fall into the place they're supposed to be. That's why when he's taking his decisions, whether it's Belarus, whether it's Armenia, whether it's Ukraine, uh, by the way, which is very important, uh, yeah. whether it's Moldova, he just doesn't care what the common, ordinary guys would say. He thinks only about internal, elitarian uh, sets of position. And in Belarus, his calculation, I think it's pretty simple. Whoever would be in power, would be the friend of Russia, and would have to bend in front of the Kremlin because he would need different loans, need assistance programs, subsidies, etc., etc., etc. And actually, to my mind, uh, Lukashenko is the least desired candidate for uh, Putin, the most <laughs> diehard person and the tough nut to crack, but at the same time, he doesn't want him to be replaced uh, with the revolutionary methods. Right. And actually, here Armenia is uh, is a great example because uh, Pashinyan is the guy who always totally loyal to Kremlin, but he came to power against the will of those uh, of those in Moscow. And in uh, source sim. Uh, an initial sin that uh, could not be overcome and tolerated by uh, Mr. Putin. In Moldova, the situation, I think it's uh, it's slightly m- more difficult, but I think that Putin's calculation is actually, he is playing with don because Don is uh, not a very sophisticated and a smart person. But That's his, a very uh,
1: polite way of saying it. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, but very ambitious. And I think that Putin's uh, plan is, firstly, to increase Don's dependency on him, but secondly, to rotate, put Sandu in the position of the president, who decides nothing in Moldova, right. as Dodon brilliantly has demonstrated over the years, but put Dodon into the helm of the prime minister, which mm-hmm. uh, he can actually do, ah. taking the current coalition uh, in, in Moldovan parliament.
1: Yeah, Which is uh, interestingly enough mirrors what he did in Ukraine after the Orange Revolution, basically maneuvering Yanukovych into the prime ministership when you when Yushchenko looked increasingly unable to do anything.
0: Yeah, also also true. But uh, my point is that at the end of the day, the bottom line everywhere is absolutely the same: uh, that he ignores what people would say and thinks about the uh, internal intra-elitarian uh, layouts.
1: You make two important points here. One is that you say Putin doesn't understand the ordinary. He doesn't understand civil society. He doesn't understand that there can be an organic civil society, associations of free citizens who make their choices and defend their interests. This is an alien concept to him. And he's also afraid of the street. You anticipated where I wanted to ask you, and it's a question I had had throughout the Belarusian uh, crisis, was that I thought Putin would use this situation to get rid of Lukashenko, whom he hates and who hates him, to replace him with a more pliant, obedient, and less troublesome figure. And he didn't do it. And why didn't he do it? I think you hit the nail on the head. He's afraid of anybody, whether it's Pashanyan or somebody in Belarus coming to power through the street. That scares the daylights out of Putin. Ilya, you raised Ukraine. And I did want to bring in just briefly, because I know you live in Ukraine and you, you know a thing or two about Ukraine. How do you see the state of play in Ukraine right now in terms of Russia's struggle to regain its influence there? How do you see things playing out at the moment?
0: Pretty bad. Yeah, how so? Uh, the situation in Ukraine that uh, when Zelensky came to power, there was a major split within the society that was very much provoked by the previous president Petro Poroshenko, who, uh, struggling for power, he uh, actually was fighting for the split. By the way, more or less in the same fashion as we saw in American politics with Trump, a struggle for power also splitting the society with a very uh, deep and firm division line. More or less the same thing happened in, in Ukraine, just it was a split 75-25. to mm-hmm. uh, And when uh, Zelensky won, this 25% minority became uh, a fierce opponent, the enemy, and the uh, critic of everything that Zelensky was doing. But uh, they could not achieve people who become turned off by Zelensky to join their ranks. Everybody who gets kicked out from the Zelensky supporters' uh, ranks, they actually join pro-Russian, Medvedchuk, Uh you know, and other forces. Okay. So the more Poroshenko struggles against Zelensky... He gets maybe one, two percent addition to his ratings, but those guys, they have five, six percent additions to their ratings for every percent that, that goes out. So, and uh, that's a very unfortunate situation. And I think that during next elections, uh, Ukraine would be well divided into three camps. Uh, right. Uh, so to say, for Russian, the centrist. And also, you know, I wouldn't say pro-Western, nationalistic. That would be Mm -hmm. a mistake to take nationalistic camp as a pro-Western camp. But who would win? Pretty hard to say. It depends very much on the alliance. It can be an alliance between the center and the European forces. But I think that with Petro Poroshenko, it would be very hard to strike this kind of alliance. He is a major source of negative approvals and toxic for many people to make an alliance with uh, with pro-russian guys they also toxic but in a very different way
1: and
0: and this is a fundamental threat to the ukrainian politics and we just saw it on the local elections when uh, was this party of mayors so to say a lot of local uh, political movements who belong to this middle midstream part but they also in the opposition to Zelensky, and that's that. All makes the uh, the country wow. extremely fragmented, and I think it's a, it's a major threat at the end of this current political cycle.
1: Yeah, no, what you said does not. It depresses me and does not surprise me. And actually, going down the road, I do want to do a whole program on on Ukraine and dive into it and have you back on about that. But you know, as, as I, I, was I would,
0: just... I would say that the West, unfortunately, sorry for interrupting you, I, the West, unfortunately, is doing the same mistake it has done with Russia in 1990s. IMF and all those guys—they try to force Ukraine to do the reforms which are extremely unpopular. And by that, there is now an equal sign between democracy, corruption, poverty, West, right. etc., cetera, etc. It's still, you know, if not Putin's invasion, which is pushing people towards uh, the West, it would be already the situation which is exactly uh, uh, that would be mirroring Russia. Right situation Only the fact of aggression actually puts in population of Ukraine, majority of the population of Ukraine, to still link in their futures with democracy and uh, with the West. But under the new administration, you know, I, I don't know how firm they will be in supporting Ukraine. Trump administration at least supplied little weapons and put uh, fierce uh, sanctions on on Russia. And if Biden uh, tried to restore relationship with Europe, he may uh, forget about Nord Stream 2 and not enforce uh, energy cooperation, which is extremely important. And on the military side, when he was in Obama's administration, it was not that active, I would say, in a way more cautious approach than it was during last uh, four years. I'm I'm no fan of Trump, but that's the uh, reality that we have to face.
1: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I expect the incoming administration to be very supportive of Ukraine and very tough with Russia, but that's a subject for another podcast. At some point, what you're saying, Ilya, actually, I'm seeing a similar pattern to what we saw in Georgia, where Russia played a very long game and is now reaping the benefits and regaining its influence in Georgia, despite the fact that the Georgian population is extremely pro-Western. And it's it's almost ironic. We see Russia having losses in Armenia, Belarus, and Moldova, where it has historically been strong, and gains in Ukraine and Georgia, where it has been uh, historically, at least in recent history, Week. We're pushing up against the end. But I did want to get Ilya Zaslavsky, I wanted to bring you in just for one thing I did want to discuss, because you're an energy expert, how much did energy considerations play into Russia's behavior in the Karabakh decision? I mean, keeping was this an attempt to keep Azerbaijan on side? I was just curious about your thoughts on that.
2: I think in this particular case, everyone actually, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Russia uh, decided not to interfere with the major energy projects. I think what will be very interesting is Gazprom Bank just recently signed a new cooperation agreement with uh, International Bank of Azerbaijan, discussing in Baku how will they re- rehabilitate the recently acquired reacquired lands in uh, around Nagorno-Karabakh mm-hmm. and Nagorno-Karabakh itself. I think there will be a competition and even like a very expedited investment schedule encouraged by Azerbaijan to bring in all sorts of international investors, including Russian, but also Chinese, possibly Western investors to you know secure, to anchor those lands in economic sense, to try uh-huh. to bring in big partners. To They're already discussing developing two gold mines in the, the acquired lands. And uh, we will see more and more of this because the future of Nagorno-Karabakh, its status is not determined. It will be up for play in the next, not even five years. I think it will be in the next two years. And the uh, Azerbaijani side is already rushing to, you know, anchor it not only uh, militarily, but economically. And so I think Russia will enter uh, the economic scene of Nagorno-Karabakh in a new way. um, along with other possible investors.
1: Interesting. Well, that'll be something really, really interesting to watch going forward. This has been a great discussion, but we're bumping up against the end. That's all we have time for today. I would like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host, my name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council. And joining me from Falls Church, Virginia, where he is temporarily embedded, has been Ilya Panamaryov, a former member of the Russian State Duma and the only Russian member of parliament to vote against the 2014 annexation of Crimea. And also joining us, from downtown Washington, D.C. has been my good friend Ilya Zaslavsky, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion. Thank you. Thank Always you. Good to okay, and, you. and I'd also like to thank our awesome production team, Lance Ligas in the virtual control room. He keeps the lights and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion, and Cecilia Wynn, who handles our all-important post-production duties making us sound all a lot better than we really do. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast and read the Power Vertical blog and access all Power Vertical products at the brand spanking new website, powervertical.org. And you can also follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. The Power Vertical podcast will take a short hiatus next week because it's Thanksgiving here in the United States. But we'll be back in two weeks. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.